here's the thing. You know, we talked we're talking about blind spots. Not paying attention to patients is a blind spot, right? That's why that's the third aspect of evidence-based medicine. This notion that you would attend very carefully to patient values and expectations. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological. Clinic is hard. I heard this recently in a class that I attended. It was kind of a joke at first, but it only takes a moment of reflection to feel the depth of the truth of this. Clinic is hard. It's not just that people come to us with complicated issues. It's also that we see people who have been failed or injured by the conventional system. They come to us hoping for a miracle, and we often feel under pressure to provide one. Clinic is hard because what at first glance might look easy turns out not to be. We help in one area, but then something else gets worse. Sometimes the key to a patient's recovery is hidden in the oddball symptoms that make us scratch our heads in confusion. It's hard because we bring our lack of confidence and our hubris into the room. Assessing ourselves as we assess our patients, are we up to the task? Are we the great healer who has this down pat? magician, the seer, the fraud, hopeful helper or warrior against the system. We bring our own stories in and that can make it difficult. Clinic is hard because clinical reality is difficult to capture in a book. It doesn't fit neatly into a flow chart. You can't rely on an app or a Google search. Often we are out of our league and yet we have to persevere. Reality, it turns out, looks nothing like an Instagram feed. The Tao Te Ching number 44 reminds us to consider what is more destructive, success or failure? This isn't idle speculation. It cuts to the core of how a clinic asks us to remain fiercely present amidst doing what we can to be of service to others and not letting the applause of success or the disgruntlement of failure lure us into emotional surges of happiness or despair. Both detract from our ability to stay focused with what's unfolding before us. Clinic is hard, and it asks of us more than we have to give, and it offers to us more than we're able to receive. Okay, I think that's enough jawboning for now. Let's get into today's conversation on the blindness of experts. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. 
Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. I've got Kevin Aragol with me. Well, back again. This is the second time Kevin was with us here on the podcast uh, during the Shenlong Societies Conference. We were talking about really super interesting things like the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act in 1994. It sounds so boring, but it actually was a fascinating conversation about really important stuff that underlies our profession. And today we're back for a conversation on what we've been calling the expert problem. We're experts in our line of work. We deal with experts all the time. We also, as consumers deal with experts out there. I'm using air quotes, experts out there who uh, we hope are trustworthy and know what they're doing and have our best interest in mind. Sometimes it's a lot more complicated than we give it credit for. Kevin and I have been sort of chewing this idea over amongst ourselves for a few weeks now. And so today we're sitting down, rolling tape and digging into this uh, issue of experts. Kevin, welcome back to Geological. It's a pleasure to be here. This is fun. Well, hopefully it's going to get even more fun because we're digging into, uh, you know, kind of ragging on experts. But here's the thing. We're experts, too. Yeah. And the other end of this conversation, when you're 
digging around and looking at this is this pervasive lament of the commodification of knowledge and the death of expertise and all of these ideas. So the goal of, of sort of debunking the notion of an expert, I'm not sure that, that that's where we're headed. And at the same time, to sort of problematize or engage with the issues that surround expertise, that I think is super important for us as the air quotes are going here too, as quote unquote experts and as folks who people seek out as experts, right? That's the right. Thing. Well, and there's that whole thing too. It's so easy if you perceive someone as an expert to give over a lot of your own authority. And in some ways, for good reason, right? If someone has a lot of background that you don't have, if they've got a skill set that you don't have, you know, of course, you want to seek them out and, and be able to consider what they have to say. And I suspect many of us love that wonderful quote from Suzuki Roshi about, in the mind of the expert, there are a few solutions. In the mind of the beginner, there are many. I, I'm sure I just butchered that, but I, I'm pretty sure you're right. I'm I'm laughing because I made some notes for this, and one of them is from Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, and he says the mind of the beginner is empty, free of the habits of the expert, ready to accept, to doubt, and to open to all the possibilities. All right, there we go. Same thing, right? I'm glad I'm talking to an expert here. <laughs> I just try to have some stuff written down so I sound like an expert, <laughs> which may be the key to expertise. Who knows? You know, we were talking the other day about the consulting firm uh, McKinsey, right? Very, very famous, huge consulting firm. And evidently, there's some work that they've done lately with uh, a small governmental organization in the United States, the CIA. And like completely screwed up the system. You know, just a brief look at some of the reporting that's coming out of that. And McKinsey is like Gartner and a number of other of these sort of really scaled consultancies. They tend to have a bit of a package. They come in and they do their thing. The goal was to make the CIA more nimble for addressing regional conflicts and traditionally those of you who are CIA fans out there know that CIA has a kind of bright line between analysis and operations for a number of reasons. What One of them historically has been to prevent operational interests from swamping analytical processes and essentially avoiding self-fulfilling prophecies and other types of problems. So apparently what McKinsey did was to restructure a long-standing system that's worked well for CIA and as part of their culture and essentially blew it up in a way that now seems, you know, again, this would all be classified, so we'll never know, really, but would seem, based on reporting, to have completely messed up CIA's ability to process intelligence and give unbiased reporting to operational services and things like that. And one of the most interesting comments, and I think something that kind of lives in our space a little bit here, was a critique. And this is a critique that's made of many consultancies, and that is that McKinsey took a cookie-cutter approach. And one of the 
people who observed this said, you know, all the consultancies claim that they tailor their approaches, they customize their approaches to clients, but in fact, all of them use an off-the-rack strategy and then kind of push the client into it. When I think about expert issues, for instance, Senge talks about, we could talk about him later, this notion of mental models. We get good at a particular set of models, a particular set of expectations, and maybe we put clients or patients or whoever we're trying to help into those without reflecting broadly enough, hence the beginner's mind. I mean, it's easy to make fun of large organizations that do things like this. And it's it's always easy to look back in retrospect and go, oh man, did they go off the rails and not know it? But bringing this back to us and the work we do, I mean, how often are we also working out of a mindset where we've kind of got a package, the package is the stuff that we like to do, or the stuff that we think we're good at, or maybe we are good at, but it might even just be the stuff we like to do. What's the package? The stuff we like to do. And people come in and we fit them into that thing that we like to do. I had this wonderful experience where I got to learn from somebody else's mistake when I was in acupuncture school. I was super lucky. I think I was in my third year. We're in clinic with a supervisor who was wonderful and brutal. And one of my classmates came back in, described the treatment that she'd just done and how much she enjoyed it. And the supervisor just looked at her and said, I'm glad that you had a good time. I hope it was helpful for your patient. <laughs> um, you know? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, dear. It's, it's good to have a couple of soul-destroying experiences in school, especially if it's not you. Well, I was lucky enough to be the fly on the wall at that one. I mean, it could have been me. I mean, actually, it should have been me. I was lucky enough in that one moment. It didn't have to be. You know, on occasion, we do get to learn from other people's mistakes. Well, it's interesting. I had a, a student who, who had a, a range of experience in other, other clinical settings, and I still have to run the quote down, but he, he used to quote a clinician who said, therapy exists to make the therapist happy. I would not say that's the entire picture, and I would say that is a piece of the picture. I think it's one that we don't like to talk about so much. I mean, how many of us do our work because we like to do our work? I'm raising my hand. I love doing my work. I feel super fortunate that I get to do it. But yes, when, you know, when does it become, oh, this is for my own benefit versus the benefit of our patients? And it's, you know, I think it's a teeter-totter. Both of these things need to be considered in the work that we do. Yes. Ideally, we should all go to work happy. I think the point of that quote, in a sense, is to remind us in the clinical business that we we do seek out positive experiences. I mean, and there's there's even literature on this. We like patients who get better. We like patients who, who validate our skill. We like a clinical challenge when we can win on it in a reasonable time frame. But, you know, we're not necessarily thrilled when we have folks who, who don't improve or, you know, I can... I could make lists, but, you know, folks, folks who don't improve, folks who in the end, you know, you really need to go to someone who can help them out. And I've been a case of they're wasting some time with me or folks where we've, you know, we've really got the picture wrong. 
going in. All of these things. And happier clinicians, for the most part, you know, ideally avoid these or in some cases maybe don't even, don't even want to see these. Well, you know, and there's also that thing about doing what you can as a practitioner to attract to you the kinds of patients that you want to work with. You know, there's an element of that too. It, it, it's good for the business. It's good for patients. It's good for the practitioner. I mean, I'm, I'm not crazy about treating knee pain. Not my thing. It's, it's other people's thing. I mean, bring me your digestive problems. That makes me a happy practitioner. I like working with that stuff. Knee pain, eh, I'd love it if they went somewhere else, actually. So there is that element of, of knowing what is our, you know, what they say in Chinese, fan way, our, um, eh, I hate it when I forget the English word, our scope, right? It's good to know our scope. Be cognizant of that. This is why in almost every discipline, there's a trend to specialization, right? Or increasing expertise and increasing focus, all of which is why ideally you seek out expertise, right? The person who will treat the GI pain in a few visits, the person who will treat the knee pain in a few visits, the person who will resolve the clinical problem. It's clear there's tremendous value there. If you work with well, any kind of, of engaged specialist, they build a lot of expertise. They have a lot of speed and facility with pattern recognition, whether it's cars or, or people. They have significant expertise. At the same time, you run into the tunnel vision risk is the thing that we'd all like to avoid. That's what's so beautiful about Suzuki Roshi's comment about the beginner's mind, right? Somewhere in there, you have to keep a, a space for not what you thought. And even with the best of intentions, I will usually start out a clinical encounter with a simple question like, how are you doing? Or how have things been recently? I was very fortunate recently to have another practitioner in my clinic. Actually, it was part of a class. We, we, we'd run a, a class here in Seattle. We're doing a clinical observation day. I provided the, the patients. I had another person treating my patients. I got to just observe as a student. And I was amazed at some things for some people that I've been seeing for a long time that they said to this other practitioner. And I was thinking, holy crap, I didn't know about that numbness in your leg. And I'm thinking to myself, how could I possibly not know about the numbness in this person's leg? I've been treating them for a long time. They're, you know, they're regular. And I didn't know it. I didn't know it was there. Maybe I'd known it at one point. Maybe it had fallen off the radar. Maybe I never knew. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I know this patient. I thought I knew this patient really well. And, and there were things that just came up. And, and it wasn't just that one patient. It was some of the other patients as well. Having a whole fresh set of eyes on them revealed things to me that I'd really been blind to. And I, and I had no idea that I'd been blind. That's such a great process. Listening to you makes me sort of think of two things. One we could circle back to, but I don't want to forget. Uh, Jerome Groupman, who's a physician who writes a great deal about the things physicians bring to the diagnostic process, the way they can overlook things or bring to bear a diagnostic perspective that's that's recent in their minds, but not applicable. In other words, all the ways we can kind of 
accidentally not quite see the patient, which is a huge thing. But what you spoke about really, really interests me because I'm not sure that brave is the right expression, but so smart. And in the context of what's happening with medicine, the notion of coaching strategies, we talk about continuing education, but a lot of continuing education never really gets into our clinical setting and gives us an opportunity to really look at what we're doing. Why do you think that's the case? The other piece of the, the whole expert question or the expert problem is this thing of evaluating other experts. Who's expert enough, safe enough to come into my clinical setting? I'm fortunate or unfortunate enough to know a number of folks who are who are expert, and sometimes those folks can bring very, very strong opinions into spaces that may or may not be accurate. So that's a risky, risky situation. I mean, I, I like what you're describing because it's got a level of openness to it and relaxation that I think is incredibly valuable. It doesn't sound like anybody was... Um, Putting you in a position of being judged? I was putting myself in a position of being judged. Yeah, there was there was someone doing some judging. It was mostly me. <laughs> but that's kind of how that ought to be, right? I, I would hope so. The information that can be collected from a patient, especially in our line of work, is extensive. And the, the trick, of course, is getting the information that guides you to the right clinical solution. Well, in knowing which information is actually relevant. Yeah. Being able to sort it through. Exactly. Well, that comes back to the expertise thing. It also comes back, of course, to because we sort of started off with McKinsey and this the kind of cookie cutter approach. And the extent or the range of information that we have access to, the range of treatment strategies that we have access to. Sometimes I entirely see this with students. I can certainly see it with myself under some conditions. It's so broad that it's kind of daunting. And so in many cases, people want do this and then do this and then do this. Yes, we're looking to get a little simplicity out of the chaos if we can. If we can. If we can. Um, if we can, exactly. And sometimes we move, we move a, little, a little fast towards that, I think. Or at least that's a risk. There's also the possibility that only simple problems have simple solutions. And usually people are not coming to us with simple problems. Well, oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, yes, that's like, that's a whole other podcast. Like, who, who do we see? The patient with their spine having been broken in three places and in pain for 30 years pops right in, right? So that's not a simple problem. Yeah, simple problem's a nice thing to have. And that's a consideration as well, given we're often the court of last resort clinically for folks. Very often, yes. I think it gives me a very skewed view of what medicine is like out there. Because we do not see your average top-the-bell curve United States citizen. We're seeing the people that have either been failed by the system or fallen through the system, or in many cases, they've been harmed by the system. Oh, 
absolutely. I mean, I, I have to remind myself that orthopedic surgery is a good thing because in point of fact, who I see are people for whom orthopedic surgery has ultimately not been a good thing. Maybe it's even been an exploitative or damaging thing, but I know that's a very small number of individuals statistically. They just happen to show up. Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Well, right, because the ones that were taken care of, the ones that are doing fine, problem done, they're on with their life. You know, it's like the keys are always in the last place where you looked. This also brings me to another thing, and I don't want to... I don't want to be ragging on our colleagues in the in the conventional medicine world, but there's there's something that I have seen, and, and I'm bringing this up because I'm curious about my own blinders and my own opinions that keep me from seeing things or being curious. I think any of us that have been in practice for any length of time that have helped people with something that really actually for us might be simple, but difficult for a different medicine. I'm not saying one medicine is better than the other. I'm saying people need something at a certain time. Different things help different people. The key is timing and appropriateness. But there are more than a few instances where I know that I've helped people and they go back to their conventional doctor and say, my you know XYZ problem is cleared up. I used acupuncture. Or they just say, my XYZ problem is cleared up. And the doctor has zero curiosity. It's not like, holy smokes, what did you do? I mean, that things like that aren't supposed to go away. They just they have zero curiosity. It's like, oh, okay, next. Well, let's adjust these medications over here. I mean, whatever it is, it just doesn't land for them. I think this is an exemplary situation, not just in medicine, but maybe for any expert. We're experts, we know our thing. We're very clear in our scope and we're like super good at it, as we should be. But then how do we incorporate new information where we don't even know how it fits in our framework? And so it just bounces off. Curiosity. In a sense, curiosity, even though there's some Zen teachers who've kind of commented adversely on, on human curiosity. I mean, I think curiosity is a piece of the beginner's mind kind of an openness to possibility and a, you know, a questioning. I'm with you, and I think it's probably everyone's community. I'll tell you, we could talk about physicians, but years ago, I did a fair amount of study in the Toyohari system, because at that time, I was kind of, I don't know, 
you know, there's, there's a whole social scheme. Anyway, I wound up sitting at a banquet, um, a small, not a big banquet, but a number of Toyohari teachers and translators. And I was kind of positioned where I had a translator and a, a famous Toyohari teacher. We were eating and chatting. And as you're aware, Toyohari, depending on the school, uses minimally insertive generally needling techniques, low stimulus, sometimes non-insertive techniques. And I turned to the gentleman and I said, you know, it's so interesting to me. You guys, I don't think I said you guys, but that's what I meant. You know, do this, do this technique with, you know, an effort at, at no stimulus and a specific kind of response, if any. And I said, and then you've got like, you know, the entire country of China where Everybody's doing deep insertion. I mean, th that's a whole other conversation, but, you know, nominally. Chi uh, summoning, strong stimulus. And I said, so what do you think about that? And he looked at me and said, oh, they're wrong. <laughs> and I was dad to go find something else to talk about. But uh, what I liked about that was this complete and utter lack of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not just it's not just them, in a sense. Yeah. I, no. I, I, again, I think this is a very human thing. It's it's easier to see it in those guys over there than in us guys over here, or in me myself personally. We do. When I think about the level of anxiety that that can pervade our field, I mean, I've spent at the last way too many years, a lot of time with students, getting students set up to practice successfully. And we may be one of the few professions where, where we work really hard to train people and get them through exams. And then they know that once they've done that, they have a whole other project, which is to build a practice, get a job. Figure out how this stuff actually works. And in the absence of any kind of strong social context. So unlike nursing, I mean, if I'm a, a nurse, recent grad, PA, recent grad, PharmD, recent grad, there can be some issues. But for the most part, if I'm, you know, ambulatory and not hostile, I'm likely to get a position somewhere. I don't have to struggle too much. And I will say in our field, this has improved. I mean, I see a lot of grads moving into clinical situations where they're not the sole party responsible for getting things set up. And they have a context. And that's really exciting as somebody who's been doing this for a few decades. But what I'm getting at is that anxiety, kind of saying, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing here, mm -hmm. can engender anxiety. Oh, absolutely. Whereas saying, I know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing and I'm going to do it is reduces anxiety. It does, but it can increase that blindness that we were talking about. Well, that's, that's, that's precisely my, my point. And the many tales of, of, of experts who've either produced this or been an example of that kind of being tightly in one's lane and being absolutely certain and yet absolutely wrong mm -hmm. is fascinating. It is. 
And when it gets into the world of medicine, well, it means more, right? Because we all got skin in the game when it comes to medicine. Again, I, w- I want to come back and, and look at, especially with conventional medicine, I, I see this, again, I'm not trying to rag on our colleagues. I'm trying to understand my patients and how to better help them. But so often people will come in and like, especially if, say they've been treated for cancer and now they're on certain kinds of medications and they feel awful and they really don't want to be on it, but they're like terrified of not. If, if they're on this, you know, medication X, now they've got a 78% better chance of survival. If they take medication, something else, now they've got a 65%. It seems like the message is if you follow our advice, you're going to be okay. If you don't follow our advice and you have a bad outcome, it's your fault. That's, that, that's what it seems the conventional system is saying. And, and it's not just the conventional system. I think it's us giving our power to it as well. And maybe any expert, but we're talking medicine here. You know, it's that thing, follow our advice. If you don't and it goes wrong, it's your fault and you deserve it. Whereas if you follow the advice and it goes wrong. Well, you know, we did the standard of care, so too bad for you. I, uh, my favorite expression, because I've had it used on me a few times in clinical settings, is at that point, the expression is medicine is, is an art and a science, right? Because it's the art dimension that is open to this this kind of unexpected outcome, the failure, what have you. We're all kind of set up in our, in our social processes that sort of lock us into certain behaviors. Absolutely. You know, and I should probably say socioeconomic processes. I remember years ago, I, I did an inpatient visit for a cancer patient at a famous, famous, not going to name, Metropolitan Cancer Center. And this was a patient who was likely, from everything that she knew and we knew, likely not to be alive within a month or two. And she'd come to the famous cancer center at some inconvenience and expense. She lived some distance away. And, you know, this stuff is is brutal for people. This was a younger woman with a family. Our social ethos is kind of, you know, fight through defeat cancer, you know, are you fighting? Are you going to win? But the costs of chemo and other, and I don't mean the economic costs, although that's the thing, but I mean the physical, emotional costs of that. And this was, was a woman who was clearly balancing that. And she had kids and she wanted to be alive for those kids, but she also wanted to be with those kids in case she wasn't going to be alive. Right. And so I was there doing my you know, not likely to create a miracle acupuncture treatment, but something to to help with pain and anxiety and to palliate and a good thing. And so I got to overhear something because there was a therapy that she, you know, she'd been informed about. There was some potential. She wanted to talk to her oncologist at the famous cancer center. And she finally got a hold of one of the residents not the attending, who came in, kind of brusque, really an interestingly almost angry face at the patient. And the patient got the question out. The question was this, 
can I talk to Dr. So-and-so? I think I want to do this therapy, but I want to see if I can arrange to do it at a center near my home so I can be with my family while I'm doing this. Do you think he can make some time to talk to me? Could I please talk to him? And without any <laughs> touch of, of interpersonal engagement, the resident turned to the patient and said, oh, Dr. So-and-so, you know, if he hears you're going to another center, he's not going to want to talk to you anyway. <laughs> I just stood there. I was, I was filled with awe. And I thought, my goodness, you know. And in somebody's mind, busy oncologist, lots and lots of patients, you're going to go away from me, so I'm not going to provide care for you. You're going to be somebody else's problem. You can almost, you know, you can break that down in a, in a reasonably positive and ethical way. But for me, I just looked at that and I thought, wow, that's, that's such an amazing thing to say to somebody who's looking at you, you know, to maybe, maybe, maybe save their life and maybe, maybe, maybe let them have a good month with their kids. I love this story. This is a situation where that woman was not talking to an expert. This is a case where that woman was talking to a resident. This is someone who is still in the process of learning their craft. They're probably overtired, overworked, probably barely even there in many ways. So I want to be careful. That's probably true. And again, I'm making an assumption. Uh, could have been a fellow because this was completely, completely oncology. Resident, tired, overworked, or what have you. If they're floating like that, that's at least six years of graduate medical education before they're, they're doing that. So I grant you, but still. How do you feel like this stuff might be showing up in our work and in our world as Chinese medicine practitioners? A lot of this is about power and economic and, and medical resources. We're not that, in a sense. We're marginal, to be blunt about it. Because I was thinking about this before our talk, and the, the thing that I think about a great deal is, are we doing enough to continue to learn and develop our skill set? To essentially develop our expertise, if you will, like the example you gave. Because I can look back and I can look at periods when I've been really highly engaged with continuing study. And then I can see periods where, where I'm not, where I'm essentially just working from my toolkit, working from my existing resources, not really, you know, I mean, people might argue with me because I read studies and things like that, but not necessarily bringing as much pressure to improve my game as I could. I would hesitate to criticize my colleagues because I know lots of folks who persistently, continually study and engage and develop skills. But I would say that when I look at this, I think, you know, I need to be careful about missing opportunities or not, not really continuing to build skill sets and knowledge and expand my capacity. I think you've just touched on something that is endemic to adult learning. As adults, we like to feel like we're in control. We like to feel like we are competent. We like to feel like we know what we're doing. 
whenever we put ourselves in that learning environment where we're stepping into some area where we don't know much, where we're going to make more mistakes than correct decisions, where we might not even understand the theory well enough to even begin to apply it until we've worked with it and read and studied and come back and looked at it in clinic and, and maybe had some supervision around it. I think it's very tricky as adults to learn new things because we're rewarded for being the competent people we are. We like feeling like we know what we're doing. You know, stepping into that feeling of, I don't know what I'm doing and I'm okay with it. I mean, you got any ideas about how you cultivate that? Well, I don't, I don't know exactly. I mean, that's, I, I loved what you described, um, the idea of bringing somebody into your clinical setting and watching them engage. Cause that's just like a whole, a whole other, other window. The other thing is that, you know, when we experiment or we learn, if we're stepping away from our, our established skills, then we can, you know, we can definitely have anxiety. I mean, am I, am I going to do this right? Is it going to work, this new thing, right? So there's, there's that. I do think some form of learning community or some context where there can be exchange of ideas and exploration, and you see this, you know, there's eagerness for this. You see this at some CE courses. There are folks that do online programs or seminars for for different types of professional development and i think there are, you know there's definitely eagerness for that and then the the question is how do you how do you create those opportunities in ways that are useful for people that foster that kind of openness i mean cuz what do we want we want openness but we also want some kind of rigor and engagement so community is what comes to mind that's a funny thing but I would say that. I mean, that makes sense. Our profession is so isolated in so many ways. Even though we are working with people all the time, we're face-to-face -face with folks, it's isolating in that at the end of the day, we've seen a lot of patients, but in terms of being able to exchange with other colleagues, that's much more difficult. You know, usually by the end of the day, we want to go do something else. Again, it's not always the case that the sort of most refreshing and empowering thing is to sit down and kind of explore, you know, the sense that, well, we're not good here. Or we need to improve this. Right. Right. Yeah. It's often more fun to focus on what we've done right than what we haven't done so well. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. And the, the thing that's floating out there again in the world of, of medicine and, and one of the advantages, I mean, because this is the other thing, we have a profession that has sort of a diverse range of practice strategies, different treatment models, things of this sort. And we're not, for the most part, driven by clinical algorithms or, you know, we could have a whole conversation about evidence-based medicine. I tend to think of us as evidence-based at the same time, we're not necessarily clinically driven down a funnel that says, now, clearly, it's this medication, you know, at this dose for this kind of patient with this outcome. We just don't have access to that. Well, we so. don't. And, and I think, too, it gets into what are we 
calling evidence. The standard for evidence-based medicine is this three-part, almost little triangle, with the notion of best current evidence, whatever that might be, anything from from a textbook to an up-to-date meta-analysis is, in fact, evidence. And then there's clinician experience, which is highly valued in evidence-based medicine. And, and yet, when we talk about that, it kind of gets pushed to the side. You know, in other it, words, it seems like it does get pushed to the side. And then the third. What, the, do you have any idea why that is? Well, I think there's several things, but let me hit the third because that's right. even more interesting. And that's patient values and expectations. Oh boy. Look, I've been in, in a number of settings in hospitals, dialogues with physicians, and I've, I've had people kind of haul out evidence-based medicine as a club and attempt to beat me around the head and shoulders with it. And the line usually goes something like this. Well, I practice evidence-based medicine. What do you do? And my comment is, guess what? I practice evidence-based medicine too. The issue, I think, is that in many cases, this is improving, but in many cases, uh, randomized controlled trials are not necessarily capturing the kinds of clinical interventions that we actually do. So their outcomes are kind of equivocal for us. We look at them and we go, oh, that's great. They demonstrated that acupuncture was helpful, but that's not precisely what I do. Or they demonstrated that acupuncture wasn't helpful. But that's not precisely what I do either. So, you know, and this thing we call acupuncture is a big, big thing. So I think that's probably one of the main reasons. The other thing is reading clinical trials is not actually an entertaining recreational activity. And and I say this as somebody who's been reading them for decades and helping students learn how to read them and incorporating them in processes it's, you know, at best, it's kind of an acquired taste. It's certainly a skill. And I don't really know anybody who, who treats this as a, how should we say, episode of law and order in a bag of potato chips or most recent clinical trial. I'm probably with the bag of potato chips, sad to say. But it takes some work. And getting in there and figuring out what might even be helpful to us clinically takes some work. And then we forget the other two aspects of evidence-based medicine. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP-certified facilities, and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective, 
herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Well, I'll tell you how much I'd forgotten about them. Actually, I hadn't forgotten about them. I wasn't aware that they existed. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. Well, I think that's that's actually I'm I'm glad. I thought that might might in the end be relevant to this because that's a piece of the expertise equation. Clinical expertise is one of the three aspects of evidence-based medicine, and I think our trick is to keep enriching and improving our expertise, that's where that third corner, that evidence component comes in. That's all kinds of learning and study. And then here's the thing, you know, we talk, we're talking about, you know, blind spots. Not paying attention to patients is a blind spot, right? That's why that's the third aspect of evidence-based medicine. This notion that you would attend very carefully to patient values and expectations. I'm going back to my probably long gone cancer patient at Famous Cancer Center, right? Somebody in that conversation was really not practicing evidence-based medicine that day. Right, because what was it that the patient wanted? They wanted some treatment. They wanted to be near their family. They didn't have much time. They were scared to death, and it's like, what's the most important thing for this person at this time? How can I help this person at this moment? And you touched on this, that medical, that level of medical authority, which is, is look, I would say this, justly earned. I mean, oncologists are remarkable clinicians. Talk about evidence-based medicine, talk about an engagement with outcomes, very data-driven, good stuff. This is a patient who at that point knows she's in the hands of the best person at the best clinical facility. And she wants that person's insight. And what she's told is, wow, they're not even going to talk to you. So it's a very, very interesting thing. I want to come back for a moment to about the patient's values and expectations. Because I, I suspect this is something that we run up against all the time, except we don't notice that we're running up against it. I mean, I'm, I'm going to own this one. People come in, they're looking for something. I think I know what they're looking for. It might be that they want their knees to feel better. It might be that they want to be pregnant. It might mean that they don't want to have headaches or they just want to feel happier in their life. And I can think of so many times I've, I've helped people. The thing that they came in looking to solve gets solved, but they still seem completely unhappy with what's going on in their life. <laughs> Lots of places to go with that. I mean, I, I think, and again, economics can be a piece. Patient values can be a piece. I mean, I try not to overlook referral. A great deal because I think that's I might have I might have insight I might have some useful advice but I'm not sure that 
I'm the person who is going to be able to guide the patient to the resolution of whatever range of issues are really getting getting in the way, especially if it's as you described. I would look towards counseling, psychotherapy. That's having a good a good set of referral resources. That's having the conversation with the patient about what they're what they think. Well, what they think, what they actually want. You know, so often people come in, they say, I want this, and then they get it, and you know, something else arises. I, I absolutely refer out often for psychotherapy um, or some kind of counseling because it's kind of the way that they are structuring their own reality that that's causing problems. We can help with that in many, many ways. I mean, one of the beauties of Chinese medicine is that, and I've seen this plenty of times, I suspect people listening and, and Kevin, you too have probably seen this, people come in with certain issues with anxiety or depression or just you know, kind of out of sorts. And we don't talk them through in a talk therapy way, but sometimes we can put needles in a few places. They sort it out for themselves. Not always, but often enough. I think what I'm trying to get to here is as a practitioner, how to be better able, how to be more cognizant of those values and expectations that a patient brings so that I can incorporate that with some level of consciousness and awareness on my part instead of ignoring it or not even seeing it in the first place so later it comes up and blindsides me. A, a bit like the dumb leg, if you will. <laughs> a bit like the numb leg, yes. I mean, no, no, because we've all got yeah, our, uh -huh. our, our, our numb legs. I mean, I have 10 visits in and somebody's telling me something that, I mean, did I fail to ask about it? Did they not tell me? But boy, I wish I'd known. Oh, man, no kidding. You know, so like funnily enough, and this again, we've talked a bit about this kind of issue, the history and 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 charting is is absolutely a thing. I think a lot of times clinically, once we've identified the problem we're trying to help with, you know, I certainly get very focused on that. And you know, for me, it's sort of remembering to step back enough to catch what else is is going on and give people space space to talk and. I entirely agree with you about acupuncture giving people a, a space or a place to sort stuff out. I mean, we see that in substance abuse. We see that in treating anxiety, anger, different types of issues. So I'm not suggesting we're not helpful there at all. There's a, and again, I don't remember the author, but it's another, another sort of prominent trend. And when you hear about this, you sort of go like, how is that an innovation? But it's a clinician, a, a physician who's worked really hard at bringing checklists into medical settings because it turns out that if everybody uses a checklist, which I think uh, airplane pilots absolutely have known for yes. a long time, yes, 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 you know, stuff doesn't go wrong. I sometimes think, wow, you know, and we can do this with tech. Uh, we can throw reminders in patient management software that says, you know, six visits in, maybe it's a good time to step back and 
reevaluate patient goals and see how they're proceeding and check expectations, things like that. I mean, because sometimes I think it's just a nudge. Well, and I think it is helpful every now and then, especially for the patients that decide they want to stick with acupuncture. I know, and I, you know, I hate to admit this, but the truth is sometimes when I get a patient, they, you know, they're getting better. It's helpful. They come in on a, on a somewhat regular basis because they're using it for their well-being at this point. It's easy to get a little bit lazy. Absolutely. And this is, this is another dimension of the expert problem, which is we're being hired to use our expertise and to get paid for it, right? So, you know, am I driven? I have a, a nice personable patient who, you know, tells me they're getting value from the intervention and I'm doing something that's pretty standard. I'm not being super clever. I'm doing what I know how to do. They're happy. I'm happy. There's no impetus for change or movement. It's not necessarily the case that there should be. Mm -hmm. But it's an interesting problem. Yeah, it's, it's easy to have that blindness go forward. It's like, here's the situation. I understand the situation. Great. We'll just keep changing the oil. Again, professional business models, dentistry, which in some ways has put itself both in and out of business. But if you look at, you know, twice yearly appointments for cleaning and examination, that's bread and butter. That's a fairly standard thing. And that provokes, you know, where a cavity is detected, where a problem's detected, that provokes a uh, income-producing intervention. And I, but that's not a critique. I love dentist, dentistry and all of it. I'm just saying that the economic model is clear and well-organized and bounded, whereas what we deal with often, you know, when you're talking about somebody's sense of well-being and relaxation or resolution of problems that are not not dramatic but meaningful to the patient where where are we in the space of enabling dependency when are we headed there that's an issue for us can be yeah i mean how often do we fire patients so to speak it's like you know you're fine come see me when you need me well Exactly. And I mean, I, I joke with students. I probably shouldn't joke with this on a recording, but I would just say this. I mean, what could be better? A waiting room full of essentially healthy patients who wish to continue to see you indefinitely. Mm -hmm. You know, and at the same time, I'm, I want to speak to the other side of that. This is one of the delicious things about practicing medicine. It's so complicated. We can, we can talk about each end of the issue and uh, and there's something valuable to mine, I suspect. But the, you know, the other side of it is that patients come in, and sometimes they'll just look at me and go, you know, actually, there's nothing wrong with me. I have no complaints. You know, but I just want to be treated. Is that okay? Do I have to have something wrong with me to come in? And and the answer is no. I mean, people go get massages or pedicures or a nice meal because it makes their life better. People sometimes come in for acupuncture because I feel better when I do this. So I'm going to do this because I feel better. 
and then there's the other piece, and I think we've all seen this. People come in and, well, you know, I got this little thing. Now, there's this thing on my little finger, and it, you know, it, it comes up like that, and blah, blah, blah. They, they, they will manufacture something so they feel okay with coming in. And the real reason they want to come in is just because I like how acupuncture makes me feel. So I, I think there is room for that as well. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I, I, I say I'm kidding, but it's, it's, a, it's a borderline thing. Acupuncture's blessing and curse is that most patients will feel better and enjoy an acupuncture treatment. Most patients. And there are phenomena with that around time and patients' constitution and physiology, but there's certainly plenty of data to support the fact, you know, that that's a, that's a fact for people from a neurophysiological point of view. And even if you look at, at sort of the orientation of the Neijing, this is something that acupuncture can do for people, and it's great that it does that. I'm with you. I just think it's a very it's a very interesting framework. And that may be our equivalent of the semi-annual dental checkup is the uh you know the seasonal treatment which many clinicians do. Yeah. And and I've got a number of patients they come in once every 2 months, once every 3 months. You know, for for just that reason. Not a lot, but some. I mean, acupuncture again Makes real change, change that's positive. I think many people detect that. Yeah. And like you say, for most folks, it's a pleasant experience. So that's helpful. All right. You mentioned some guy named Senge a while back. I just wrote it down. I wanted to circle back and see what you had to say about this cat. He's an interesting guy. MIT uh, faculty, I think now retired. He he kind of caught on to... Uh, a management fad in the 1990s called the Learning Organization and did a great deal of publication and trainings. He actually still has a, a training project. I'm interested in that because I do some consulting work with organizations apart from just acupuncture schools, which I also do work with. And Senge's model... I think is is highly relevant to professionals, whether they're in an institutional context or not. And I'll I'll give you the the very concise description of his model because we're all isolated clinicians, but maybe one of the things we need to think about is how to work with our greater community as an organization of sorts. For Senge he wrote about systems thinking, that is cybernetics, things that we're generally familiar with. And, you know, we do systems thinking all the time. Yeah, Chinese medicine is one of the original systems thinking models. Exactly. So he called that the fifth discipline. And then the other four were personal mastery, uh, that is special proficiency, the expertise that we've been talking about. Uh, he wrote a great deal about mental models, which is one of the reasons I got interested in his work, because that's, that's been a longstanding interest of mine, um, how we, we organize our understandings of ourselves, patients, what have you. Then from an organizational point of view, he talked about building shared vision, um, which, again, is reasonably applicable to our professional community. 
And uh, you mean and, because we don't have a lot of shared vision? I think we miss out on the genuine opportunities to have shared vision. And I think we can get very, very wrapped up in, I do this and what I do is right and you do this and what you do is, is not right or my, my pet peeve is better than your pet peeve and what have you. So I do think we miss that on a certain level. I think it's a, a work in progress though. We're, we're a very new profession. And then organizationally, Senge talked a great deal about team learning. And funnily enough, this is the kind of enterprise that you've, you've explored in your clinic, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, I hadn't thought about that, but now that you mention it, yeah, there it was. If we can't dialogue with our community and engage each other around what we do in safe and positive and supportive ways, which is risky, but important then we can't do this. So this is why I, I like Senge a lot because I think he's broadly applicable. He's not just for, I mean, he's certainly a scale industrial kind of thinker because that's where the bunny is and that's where getting to a solution in one month versus three months can mean millions and millions of dollars, speaking of the CIA or whatever. <laughs> but it's it's got applicable stuff for, for us. Yeah, especially the systems thinking um, and this this issue of how you integrate and develop personal mastery in a positive way organizationally. And again, Senge writes a lot about these blind spots. Okay, we'll put some notes on the uh, show notes page about that. One last thing, and then, and then we'll wind it down for today. I'm curious to know about any practices that you have for yourself that you use to keep yourself kind of open and flexible so that you can both cultivate your deep expertise and at the same time stay open to new information? So for me, study's a thing, being in books, being in research articles. Um, I don't do as much lately of tracking down really good CE courses, but I've got kind of a list and and when I'm feeling energetic and like I want to be on airplanes, then then I've got a, a list of those. I think that's important. I mean, I think there's so much from from people who've really dipped themselves into things. That's good. A personal practice, some some kind of meditation or process like that. That's important. Physical practices. I'm not sure they're they're distinct. Um, and and every time I screw up clinically which I tend to pay a lot of attention to, I really try to look at what I was doing. And usually what I was doing was thinking that I absolutely had a clear idea of what the problem was out of the box without giving myself enough space to really investigate it. So that's usually the place that I try to come back to. And then for me personally, I try not to get too caught up in being successful or unsuccessful clinically. That's kind of a weird thing because we feel really good when patients get better, but that usually means that we don't feel great when they don't do well. And while both of those are excellent for motivating improvement, both of those can, in my opinion, get in the way of taking good care of patients. Absolutely. I, I remember listening to 
a speaker once, I think he was a rabbi, Kabbalistic rabbi now that I think about it. And he said something about being able to cultivate that space where you can stand so that neither applause nor booze move you. <laughs> yes. Lots of traditions wish us to have have that. And uh, I, I think clinically it's a big deal. Well, Kevin, thank you. It's always fun to hang out and talk with you about this stuff. And I appreciate uh, your thoughts on this. And I'd have a chance to dig into this whole expert thing since, uh, since, since I is one. And, and all of us are, and it's something that is really helpful to us and our patients. And it's something that, you know, we need to be cognizant of how it also creates blind spots for us. Oh, absolutely. Well, look, thank you for having me on. I hope this was fun for, for folks who are listening. Cause I, I, I worry sometimes that when I get to dig into something that's really interesting to me is the odds that it is absolutely interesting to somebody else. Not always the case. I'll be giving you some material that we can post if people want to dig into some of this stuff because there's some great stuff out there. Terrific. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.